with the reading. Still on the same subject of priestly or ministerial holiness. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel and that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord say to them, whoever of all of your descendants throughout your generations who goes near the holy things which the children of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. Whatever man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or has a, has a discharge shall not eat the holy offerings until he's clean. And whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who has an emission of semen or whoever touches any creeping thing by which he would be made unclean or by or any person by whom he would become unclean. Whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes his body with water. And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean and afterward he may eat the holy offerings because it is his food. Whatever dies naturally or is torn by beast, he shall not eat to defile with it himself with it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my ordinance lest they bear sin for it and die thereby. If they profane it, I, the Lord, sanctify them. No outsider shall eat the holy offering. One who dwells with the priest or a hired servant shall not eat the holy thing. But if the priest buys a person with his money, he may eat it. And one who is born in his house may eat his food. If the priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she may not eat of the holy offerings. But if the priest's daughter's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no child, and has returned to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat her father's food, but no outsider shall eat it. And if a man eats the holy offering unintentionally, he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one fifth to it. They shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, or allow them to bear the guilt of trespass when they eat their holy offerings, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron. And his sons and to all the children of Israel and say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or the strangers of Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows or for any of his freewill offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, you shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep or from the goats, whatever has a defect you shall not offer for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of peace, uh, of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep. It must be perfect and and uh, to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. Either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer is a free will offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your hand, in your land. Nor from uh, a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these things as the bread of your God, because their corruption is in them and, and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day and thereafter it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Whether it is a cow or oo, do not kill uh, both her nor her young on the same day. 
And when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it, in, uh, offer it of your own free will. On the same day it shall be eaten. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. Therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the reading of your word. Uh, The book of Leviticus, we do not pretend uh, is an easy book. It isn't, Lord. Uh, There there are difficulties. We we confess in our own personal study, we we often skim through it and wonder uh, what it's about. One day, perhaps, I'll know. But Lord, here you've given us a chance through the preaching to really uh, dive deeply. Although even as I read it, Lord, I'm conscious of the ways in which uh, I'm just skimming over it. But Father, give us something of knowledge of your word, that we might be more closely acquainted, if, if, if with nothing else, certainly with this, with the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, after taking a short break in the evenings, we come back uh, to the holiness code. And here the emphasis becomes priestly holiness, or as I uh, hope to say, uh, throughout the sermon ministerial holiness Uh, the holiness of the priest obviously uh, in Leviticus this should be obvious is couched in terms of the holiness code itself ceremonial uh, cleanness that's what the Lord is impressing upon his priests Uh, but the overarching spiritual truths remain the same in either covenant and that is the need for holiness among God's ministers Uh, and and so if you look at verses or, or chapters 17 through 20 you have one division that is common holiness The holiness of the people here in chapters 20 and 21, you have priestly or ministerial holiness. And the thing that you notice uh, is that uh, the same regulations are put upon the priests, only they are stricter. They must go as far as the people and then farther. That's the great overarching sense that you get as you read it. Uh, And the reason for this should be obvious. We should have no difficulty in grasping the reason for this. And it is because the priests themselves, just as the ministers of the new covenant, become uh, the guardians of the covenant itself. They are the ones, in other words, whom God sets up as not only his mouthpiece to teach the people in the ways of holiness and to tell them of his holiness, uh, but also to set an example of holiness. And if such men are not, this will be the ongoing Uh, emphasis of the sermon if such men myself included as your minister are not holy in the ways that they are calling the people to be holy then what then becomes of the covenant and its practical effects whether in the local church or in the old days in the nation of Israel obviously the requirements of holiness must fall in a most stringent way upon the minister himself and there are, th- there are five things in these, in these two chapters. There's actually a fairly neat division in four or five, depending on how you look at it. There are five things that are said about the priests. And the first is the need for ministerial holiness, the need for it. I don't want to begin with the priests. I actually just want to begin in a general way with ministers. These are the ministers of the old covenant. We have ministers of the new covenant. This brought me back to my old preaching books. It reminded me immediately of some of the the opening material in these books. And I, I, well, I was just going through them and and, and I found these things very easily. And it it was just exactly what we find here. This is what Dabney says. 
He says that the necessity of eminent Christian character is the foundation of the sacred orator's power and that it is grace which makes the preacher. And so if you've ever read Dabney's book, I, I doubt anyone in here has. If, if you have, please tell me. I would be amazed. Uh, but it's a book on its sacred rhetoric. It's a book on on rhetoric, only the rhetoric of the preacher, even the mechanics of, of sermon preparation and of preaching. But he's saying everything that I say This is on the first page, he says this. Everything that I say is built upon the foundation of the minister's godliness. And if he lacks that, he could be the greatest speaker in the world and his ministry will fail. It will fail to convince sinners. It will fail to convince saints. Likewise, Spurgeon, in his book on the ministry, a more uh, familiar one, lectures to my students, uh, says that it is necessary that his personal character agrees in all respects with his ministry and that our truest building must be performed with our hands. Our characters must be more persuasive than our speech. That's Spurgeon speaking to preachers. He says, you know, you preach a mighty sermon with your life. And, 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 and the opposite is also true. This is really what the Lord is saying here. For all that you say with your mouth, you can unsay it with your life. That's the danger. Now, this comports exactly with what the Apostle Paul says himself. He lays down the requirements, the need for ministerial holiness in uh, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. He's often throughout his epistles referring to uh, his own life and his conduct among the people. And he asks them to consider that. Was not my life in line with my message? Indeed, that's why he rebuked Peter in Galatians chapter 2. He wasn't living in step with the gospel that he preached. A minister must be blameless, Paul says, which is to say he must be holy, eminently holy among the people. Otherwise, he cannot be a minister. He doesn't meet the first requirement. His life will empty his work of all of its power. I I somewhat smile uh, as I I read Spurgeon saying this. I'm going to say, I don't know if we agree. He says, too often we hear of men who preach well but live badly. I don't know if that's true anymore. I think men today preach badly and live badly. But it is possible that men preach well and live badly. Let that never be said of me. Let that never be said of ministers of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Let that never be said of men whom God has called to the ministry. And let the people of God know the difference between between, uh, a true preacher and one who is an imposter in in the pulpit. And yet, let me uh, examine this thought a little bit from this perspective. Is it not true, we say, that the power of the ministry does not depend on the piety of the minister? You may be aware of this argument that the reformers had with the Roman Catholic Church over the doctrine of the sacraments. Was that not the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church repudiated by the reformers? That the efficacy in particular of the sacraments does not depend on the piety of the minister? Notice at least it's a more narrow argument. Well, let me agree with the reformers. The efficacy, the power of of grace, which is ministered in the sacraments, does not depend on the piety of the minister. If I should have some fall into sin, if I were to argue with with my wife on the way to church and then and then offer you the sacraments, they're still the sacraments. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to say, well, was the man holy enough to minister the grace of God to me? And that's the trap, of course, that the Roman Catholic Church falls into. Yeah, there, there are people who say, I was converted under this man's ministry. Later, it, 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 it appeared he wasn't a Christian. He apostatized. What of my profession? Well, you're still a Christian. 
Your faith does not depend upon my life. Thank God for that. That's the trap the Roman Catholic Church falls into. And it it also offers a bit of psychological relief to the minister. That I'm a Christian too, I'm a sinner too. Well, there are going to be periods uh, where my life falls in line with what we just read in the, in the, in the confession. Where the Lord lives, leaves me in a period of darkness and, and, and to a degree backsliding. What then of my ministry is all lost? No, it isn't. That is especially uh, a relief to the people. The sin of the minister does not empty the sacraments of its power. But let us not go too far in the other direction as though to say, therefore, it doesn't matter what kind of life the minister lives, certainly in relation to his preaching. Surely the life of the minister, the life that he lives does matter. Otherwise, he falls into the woeful category of the hypocrite. And let me go further and reiterate, surely the power of his ministry among his people, especially His pulpit ministry depends in a large measure on the kind of person and the kind of man he is. Is he full of the spirit? Does he know God? Does he know the gospel? Is he a Christian? Does he know the kinds of struggles the people are facing? Does he know what it is to be victorious over them? Does he have faith? These things surely matter. And certainly uh, to go along with what the Apostle Paul says, the power by which he urges the congregation along with Paul, be imitators of me. You know, that was his message too. I want you to live the kind of life I am living. And that kind of message is emptied by the hypocrisy of the minister. And the same, you know, is true to a very large degree of you, of the Christian and his witness to others. Did you ever realize that the world watches before it ever listens? It looks at the kind of person you are before it ever listens to what you have to say. And so often the power of true Christian witness as it is depicted, especially in the New Testament, is that which is the result of Christian living. Be a shining light in the midst of darkness, Paul says, and then he describes the Christian life. And so God tells his priests in the same way to be holy. He tells them of the need of ministerial or priestly holiness. In particular, he tells them in the first section not to conform too much to the world and its pagan ideas of mourning. That's what he's describing in the first part of chapter 21. He tells them equally to be careful in the choice of a spouse. He even points out that the conduct of children might Bring blame on the entire household. And so he warns the children. You find similar things in the New Testament. God is saying in essence to his ministers of the old covenant. Be holy in all these respects. Be very careful how you live. You are a chief among the people. You stand out. You represent me. You, you become in many ways a standard in their presence of what holiness is. You become a picture of what true holiness is in the eyes of the people. Yours is a holy work. Do not profane your work by your lives. Conform not to the world in which you live, but separate from sinners in all things. Indeed, God says doubly so for the high priest. And such things you will find in the new covenant, as I've said, with regard to elders or ministers. Let me offer you a quote from Andrew Bonar, which I found especially helpful when he says, if you if you read him, he says this all through these two, two chapters. It is still thus with ministers of Christ. 
The world must see the habit of our spirit and the manner of our actions to be such as might be looked for from men peculiarly set apart to minister. It seems to be a sin in ministers to to do anything whatsoever that might leave an unholy impression on others. How much more then is it a sin in them to have their own frame of spirit secularized? Oh, to have the deep solemnity and unfeigned holiness that well becomes servants of Jehovah, who is holy and who sanctifies us for his holy work. The minister must be holy. That's the first point. But then the Lord speaks in the second section, the ministerial qualifications. And so likewise, the ministers are to be qualified for the work in advance. The way that the Lord puts it here with respect to the priesthood is that the priest must have no defect. He's getting at his qualifications. This, along with his heritage, he must be a son of Aaron, is what qualifies him for the work. A son of Aaron with no defect. And then he may minister in the Lord's presence. Otherwise, God says he's unfit for the priestly work and he will pay the price. He is forbidden to do so. The spiritual principle here, uh, where we can say it's still thus with ministers of Christ as, as, as Bonar does, is simply this. This has been a, a common refrain uh, of, of Puritan-minded men for a long time. And it's, it's, uh, it's a, a message that needs to be heard in the church today. And that is, let no man seek the office who lacks the qualifications to do so. You, you, you're all familiar with the famous sermon, the dangers of an unconverted ministry. That's precisely what the Lord is saying here. Let not a man seek the office who lacks the qualifications. What are these qualifications in the new covenant? Let a man, first of all, be born again. I don't want to know about the dangers of an un, uh, unconverted ministry. I want to know the blessings of a converted ministry. I want to hear from men who know Christ and who are born again. Let them be his heralds. Let no man seek the office who is not a Christian. Otherwise, he's unfit. He's apt to defile God's sanctuaries. That's how God puts it here. Likewise, being a Christian is not enough, just as being a son of Aaron was not enough. I could go further. Let him be sure that he is called to the ministry. Let him be sure that his life is free of any outward blemish. Let him be blameless. He must possess, along with Christianity, he must possess the requisite character and calling from God. He must possess certain gifts, evidently, in the eyes of others. He must be the man of one wife and so on. If you think of the language of 1 Timothy 3 giving the qualifications of the minister. And so here God is forbidding any to seek the office of minister who lacks the call of God. And he warns, uh, he warns us what the results of such a ministry will be. But as a third point, God speaks of the need for ministerial preparation for his work. He warns of uh, the priest contracting defilement throughout the week. Here the thought is a man who is a priest must be sure not to contract defilement or else if he does uh, to seek to be clean before he carries on his work. He must be cleansed and washed and and at times even wait a period of time. And this speaks uh, spiritually of the need for careful preparation. In other words, he isn't just a minister in the sanctuary. He's a minister at all times. It's a warning against carelessness, lest the man of God take up the things of God in a defiled state. Is that not true even today? 
in a defiled state because he did not walk circumspectly in his comings and goings during the week. He's been contracting defilement all along. And then he enters the pulpit and thinks, oh, now I'm a minister. The man who does this, God says, will surely bear his sin. Again, I must quote Bonar when he says, the priest is to be a priest at all times. I think that captures it perfectly. But he goes on. Ministers may learn from this law to act for God at all times and in every place. The object of this law evidently is to keep the priest at all times, even in the private intercourse of home, vigilant, jealous of evil, abstaining from all appearance of evil. In other words, let the private life match the public life. Let there be a consistency between the two. And even let the private life ever be seen as a preparation for the public work. There's a sad testimony of too many men that they lack such a spirit. I mean that when the time comes to take up their work, they are woefully unprepared. A lack of preparation is a sin in the ministry. They begin to carry themselves as ministers, but then it is too late. Let the man of God, Spurgeon says, I'm loosely quoting him here, live close to God at all times. And when he comes to be with the people of God, let it be as though he is descending the mount of God. For there he was and there he dwelt in the presence of God and there minister to the people at the foot of the mountain. In other words, let him not think of himself. I think I've already said this as a minister only when he stands in the pulpit, but he's a minister at all times. He's called to a life of eminent holiness at all times. He is to dwell in the presence of God at all times. And if any should visit him outside of the pulpit, may they find him in the same spirit as they did before, as they did there. Now, I am speaking uh, very personally here when I say that this is a peculiar danger that faces uh, all ministers in every age. It's something that I know myself. It's the desire when you're out of the pulpit to be off duty. To relax and to enjoy oneself. To take off a bit of pressure. But here's the danger the Lord is saying. And it's something that I need to hear. I'm confessing that to you now. I know a minister who did this. A minister in our presbytery. presbytery and it wasn't long before he was no longer a minister. His rationale was. I need to take the pressure off. I need somewhere where I'm not a minister. I'm just me. As I say, it wasn't long before he was no longer a minister. The truth is, and again, I'm preaching to myself in this moment, but I need you to hold me to this. A minister is always on. He can never afford to be off. It's as though uh, when he does this, he's inviting Satan to tempt him, to trip him up. He's to be the man of God in all times, in all places. Let this be a warning to him, to me. Oh, I need a place where I can just be myself, not the minister. You know, I sometimes say this. But here I am warned. This is a bad policy for ministers. A priest must be a priest at all times. But then there is this other danger as a fourth point. That is the danger of leading others into sin. This comes out when God says uh, to the priests that they are to protect the holy things reserved for the priests. They are to keep uh, the foreigner, the common man, from partaking of these things. It's the priest who's to guard them. It's the priest who's to keep the people uh, from doing so. It's the priest or the minister who will be held to account if he does not carefully guard the holy things of God. When there is an easy familiarity, when he doesn't give the people a sense, these things are holy. You ought not to think of them but lightly. Let there be a fence set about 
the holy things. The principle is this. I almost feel uncomfortable saying this, but I, I would never say it if I didn't have the Bible on my side. There are things which belong to the minister which do not belong to the people. And it is the minister's duty to keep them from the people. And if such distinctions are not carefully kept, uh, then the people, God says, are brought into, into sin by the minister's lazy and careless attitude about this rule. His lazy handling of the holy things. Well, what things? Well, you can read about them here in the Old Covenant. But even in the New Covenant, all of you know that there are certain things which are set aside and which belong in a special way to the preacher and to him alone. And, and, and which he is to uh, not only guard, but to instill a sense of reverence amongst the people. One of the most obvious instances of this, and there's almost a straight line between the Old and the New Covenant on this point, is the Lord's Supper. If you think of the Apostle Paul's message to the Corinthians, he's saying, you went about the meal in a careless way. And it's the job of the minister to say week by week as we partake of the Lord's Supper, this thing is holy. He stands there as, as a guardian, as it were, of the thing. And, and, and you notice that only the minister may administer the Lord's Supper. That's what I'm talking about. And it becomes a sin for him to ignore this. And it becomes a sin for him thereby to draw the people into sin. But the final point is the work of the minister. When he talks all about the sacrifices, that they too must be unblemished, otherwise they will be unacceptable. This is the fifth and the final point. The offerings which were offered. This was the primary work of the old covenant priest, as you know. His ministry in the tabernacle was a ministry of offering. Uh, the book of Hebrews says the same thing. And this was to be done according to rule. The Lord was reminding them of the rules here. Otherwise, and here's the key thought to underline, it will not be accepted, God says. And so here's the spiritual principle, which applies even today. There is such a thing as a ministerial work that is not accepted. There is a kind of, uh, again, a careless ministry, which God does not accept as a true ministry. And, and is that not the great lesson of Leviticus? Uh, Nadab and Abihu, these were true priests. They were sons of Aaron. They were without defect. And yet they went in an unholy way into the tabernacle, and God did not look upon that happily. The danger is this. Some men think, just because they are ministers, lawfully called and ordained, who hold the office truly as Christian men, just because they're ministers, that God will accept anything they do, however they do that, or however they do it. That, that, is, not, that is not the case, God is saying. Nothing could be further from the truth. Let us observe and walk in his statutes and only then expect that God will accept us. That is the rule not only for the Christian, but especially for the minister. But having said all of that, those five points about the ministry, we must also see, and this is another great emphasis of Leviticus, especially when the laws of cleanliness are brought into the picture, the laws about defilement. The laws about the qualifications to, to make offerings before the Lord. We are immediately impressed with a sense, not of ministerial sufficiency, but ministerial deficiency. And that is precisely what we're meant to see. The inevitability of ministerial deficiency. The inadequacy of such priests to minister the kind of grace that the people needed. Isn't it obvious when you read this, that there is no man who is equal to this task. And that if the people of God depend on such men, 
then that uh, then theirs is a most precarious position. And yet, as you know, such becomes the argument of the letter to the Hebrews that for all the ministerial deficiencies of the old covenant priests, and there were many, and it applied to all of them, even the best of men. And to that we could add, I think rightly, for all of the deficiencies of the new covenant ministers who now stand in their place, Jesus shines brighter in every possible way. That for all of the defects and the defilements and the inadequacies of the ministers of the covenant, the fact that they are prevented by death from continuing, the fact that they are born in sin and must seek offerings for themselves and then for the people. On and on we go. You are familiar by now, I hope, with the arguments. For all of that, which is equally true, as I say, of the ministers of the new covenant, Jesus Christ is free of blame. And he is uh, not prevented by death from carrying on an eternal and everlasting ministry on behalf of the people. And so, uh, as you are familiar, I hope, with the arguments of Hebrews, you read of these deficiencies and immediately, I, I, you know, I have the NAS here. It's what I preached Hebrews for. I was thinking, or from, I was thinking of reading through it, but it's too much. It's too much. Hebrews chapters 5 through 10. Just read all of that if you want to read it. Jesus is so much better. He's so much more glorious. In fact, he carries on a perfect priesthood. And we're able to look to him and say, there is no deficiency. There's no inadequacy. And if I look for for grace from him, surely I will find it. Grace to help in time of need. In fact, that's how chapter 4 ends before he begins to speak of the glory of this priesthood. Yes, we are meant to see that. And I'm meant to preach that to you. Not the sufficiency of my ministry. But saying that I am insufficient. Indeed, Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? But Christ, Jesus Christ, he is able to save you. He really is. But that isn't the end of the sermon. Because don't hear me saying, well, you know, the earlier points didn't matter. You know, they actually didn't matter at all because for all of our deficiencies, Jesus makes them up. That is never the logic of the new covenant. I'm happy to tell you that for all my deficiencies, Jesus does make them up. But I'm also here to tell you that the point still stands. Jesus is still calling his ministers and he's still calling the church to holiness. The points do not fall. The argument, Jesus did it all so I do nothing, is the argument of the antinomian. It's the man who says, let us sin so that grace may abound. It's the man who's ready to close his Bible at Leviticus 21 and 22. Now I'm saying we still need to listen to it. And not just as a way to point to the holiness of Jesus Christ, but as the need for holiness among the ministers. Look again to what God says, especially at the end, or at least listen. Therefore, you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among you or among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Well, do you realize how much the Lord is saying about himself there? He's saying, I'm the Lord. I brought you out of Egypt. In other words, I'm your savior. I will be considered holy among you. And I am the one who sanctifies you. Isn't that the language of grace? Isn't that the language of God's sovereignty and him taking the initiative? What then does that make? Oh, oh and by the way, because of that, you ought to be holy. What, what then does that make the work of the minister? Well, the work of the minister is like this. This has to be his message. 
He stands as the messenger of the covenant. He's the, to tell people about God, what he's like. He is to tell the people uh, constantly of, of the relation that they bear to God, the kind of relationship that they have to God, and, and the consequent need for holiness as a result of that. You, you stand in a very near relation to God, you see. And that's what makes it necessary that you would be holy. That's the message of the minister. And then, of course, in saying that, he's also preaching to himself. He's saying, I need to be holy. And I had better be holy. The closer I get to God, the more holy I must become. For he is the one who sanctifies me. But here is the danger. The danger is this. I'll just, I'll just paraphrase it. I won't read it. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that I, I beat my body. I keep it in submission. And, and by the way, that does fall in line very nicely with the sermon in Romans chapter 7. This body of sin where, where sin is dwelling, where sin at times is reigning. I, 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 I beat my body down. I keep it in submission. I don't allow, allow sin to get a stronghold in my life. I know I have to be holy. Why? Lest preaching to others. I myself should be disqualified. That is exactly the message of this. I'm telling others about God. I am describing the gospel of grace and the consequent need of holiness. But the danger is that I would tell others. And in the end, I myself would be disqualified. How woeful is the case of such a man? It is very woeful. And it is terrifying. Let the minister of God not only mind his ministry, but himself. Let him be aware of the dangers which beset his ministry. Let him, I say again, preach to himself first and then to others and to keep a a close watch on his life. Amen. And let us stand together and sing praise to God. Again, from the Psalter hymnal 275. Please stand.